This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. Hello and welcome to episode 190 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today, we welcome Sarah Lund from Unwound. Sarah joined the band in 1992 and their influences on music and culture run vast and still today. From Botch, Garden Variety, Blonde Redhead, Modest Mouse, Page 99, and many more. In 2013, the Numero Group released the band's entire studio output, so it's out there for you to dive into. Jason Heller, a past guest on the podcast, and while he was at AV Club, was quoted saying, Unwound was the best band of the 90s. Quite a compliment. Sarah has been in many bands since, and it's well worth your time to dig those out. She's also a drum teacher where you can book an online drum lesson. Learn more at sarahlundrums.com. That is S-A-R-A-L-U-N-D-R-U-M.com. This is episode 190 of the Washed Up Email Podcast with Sarah Lund from Unwound. It is very tongue-in-cheek. It's just sort of a... Um, a lame name that I came up with way too long. I don't right. I'm stuck with it. I, I don't. It's not something that I really blinked at. But when I told my <laughs> boyfriend, I was like, oh, "I'm getting interviewed by." He's like, "Why would you want to be on a podcast that refers to you as washed up?" I was like, "Well, huh. that's 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 when I usually say, well, Gee and Ian did it.' So if they did it, that that's usually my response to people." <laughs> So I guess I definitely want to start at the beginning and sort of, you know, your childhood, your hometown. How did you first get into music um, yourself? And this was in Bloomington, Indiana, correct? That's right. That's right. So, yeah. Grew up in Bloomington, Indiana for the most part. Um, I did spend a couple of years in Olympia in the eighth and ninth grade. I lived in Olympia, but. I lived mostly in Bloomington until I was 18, except for those two years. Um, and almost the whole year that I spent living in Denmark, like my senior year of high school, because my father's family, my father's from Denmark. And so we sort of <clears throat> figured out a way for me to go spend most of my senior year of high school there. But, um, so my I, there was a lot of music around me growing up. My dad uh, is a 
he's a folklorist and he also was a huge bluegrass fanatic and musician and and bluegrass and sort of old time and there was like they'd have a lot of parties and there would always be jam sessions and <clears throat> and um my mom played piano um and so I don't, I just, I can't really, it, it was some music, I connected with music just really early on. Like I don't, I, like I remember writing a paper in fifth grade about music. Do you still have <laughs> that? Generally. <laughs> I don't, I have no idea where, to, I wish I just thought about it. Cause you know, I have a kid who's 11 and I've, you know, forced him to take piano lessons and he's really good at and everything, but he doesn't seem to have that same kind of like connection and interest in music that I did. And so it's something that I've been thinking about, you know, as, as he sort of develops his own relationship to music, I'm like, huh, by the time I was your age, I had like very specific tastes and, you know, obsessions and everything. And he just, not it's not really the same for him so that's what has made me sort of realize like oh that's not true necessarily true for everyone it's not that everyone became it's not that everyone was obsessed with music (laughs) right from the beginning of their lives and and as far as drumming like I, I took piano lessons when I was starting from probably from when I was like six to 11 and then um started drums in school band when I was in seventh grade. And that was the really, this is a, I've told the story before. It was kind of this ridiculous moment where like, I really hated taking piano lessons. <clears throat> and my mom told me, well, if you take band, then you don't have to take piano lessons anymore. And so I said, okay, I'll take band. And they said, well, what instrument do you want to play? And at you know, when I was a kid, I was very, uh, I was a real tomboy. And to me, the boy instruments <laughs> were drums and saxophones. Mm-hmm. And so I had those two instruments in my head and uh, just sort of randomly picked drums. Like, I really don't, I'm not really sure why. I think at one point we had a neighbor that played saxophone and my mom would complain about them practicing. And and I think maybe that was in my head, like, well, it can't be saxophone because then my mom will complain about it. Not, not also thinking, like, oh, drums might be even mm-hmm. more annoying to be around. But uh, so I just sort of, it just, I don't know, it just came out of the blue to me in that moment, sitting in the counselor's office in seventh grade. I was like, uh, okay, I'll try drums. And then I did that for three years, school band. And um, as I got into in uh, ninth grade marching band, the the drum line for the for the marching band portion, like when we would do, you know, games and parades, <clears throat> was pretty great and they had come up with all these cadences and I just like I couldn't like I didn't really 
couldn't really read music that well and wasn't really interested in reading music, but I listened and just like played along with them. And, um, and then, uh, and then when I was like 14 and my parents had split up and my mom was back. So I was in, I was in Olympia at that time in ninth grade and my mom had gone back to Bloomington and we were sort of discussing like what I was going to do next. I was sort of kind of didn't really want to stay in Olympia anymore. And my mom had this friend who had a drum set and he was keeping it at her house in my room. And she basically said, you come back, there's a drum set in your room. So I came back. Um, so this was 10th grade and, uh, so I was like 14 or something. And, um, and I think they just, she just sort of thought, well, we'll see what happens. Like if she actually plays it, then maybe we'll think about buying it. And that's what happened. So I did play it. I got really into playing it and did a lot of, you know, at that, by that time I was super into music and really into punk and, and uh and all and 60s rock and how did you um, find all that stuff like was it was it the radio first or was it your parents record collection and then how did it how did it you know find punk because you know there was a there was a discovery it wasn't you know you and i weren't searching on wiki uh it was you know (laughs) there was there was a digging process the 60s rock was first and there was a little bit of that i mean i think just I connected with rock more than I did with the folk or the um, new age or whatever stuff that my, my mom was more kind of into new age music and, and also really into like, she was really into like John Fahey and Leo Kotke, like those kinds of guitar players. And, uh, and my dad was mostly you know, bluegrass and old time stuff, but they had a couple of records in their collection. Like there was like a few Beatles, a couple of rock records, a couple of Beatles records, a Doors record. There were a couple of these like compilations of, uh, of like fifties and early sixties pop hits, you know, like there was this one called at the hop, and there was, you know, just all the sort of like, you know, oldies station kind of stuff. And, uh, and then, and we had this record called Goofy Gold, which are you familiar with that record? Some no. Know that record and love it. <laughs> it's basically like a compilation of kind of novelty songs from the 60s, you know, like One Eyed, One Horde, Flying Purple People Eater, and, and, uh, does your chewing gum lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight? <laughs> These kind of songs. And I just, like, those were the records that I chose to. So I probably started with the kind of old, the goofy gold stuff, like, as a kid. And then, like, the, from there moved into these sort of 50s, early 60s pop, golden oldies. And then into 
the Beatles, you know, the Beatles were definitely like an early gateway. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, and, and then, and then, and then from there, like my, then it was, then it started to be like friends, you know, friends from school who also liked music. And it was through friends that I got into Pink Floyd and, um, and then, and I think like my dad had a friend cause my parents weren't huge rock fans. Um, but you know, they had friends that were, and so like, I, I was a kid who was very comfortable talking to adults. And so, you know, these adults who were, you know, just like in their thirties and it was not that long ago that they were, you know, there were adults in their thirties, super excited to have a kid talk to them about the music of their youth, you know? And so I learned, you know, about like Jimi Hendrix and, some of the other, you know, it just sort of started to expand from there. Um, and then, and my dad had this friend who also was, you know, he was like, Oh, well you might like the Ramones. And he like gave me a tape of rocket to Russia. And, and, um, and then, yeah. And then from there it was like friends at school as we would talk about music and, and, uh, I learned, I just, it was really just like learning about music through friends. And then as far as punk goes, I think it just sort of found me at the exact right moment in my kind of emotional life (laughs) where it was, it was, it was seventh grade. And that was a year younger than everyone, by the way, because I skipped sixth grade. So, but I distinctly remember that seventh grade, Oh, I forgot about the whole era where I was super into like break dancing and R and B. Hell yeah! <laughs> and, and all the and that so that would have been like kind of because that was that was like I was really into Michael Jackson and Prince. This is like 1982. They're kind of high point. You know, this mm-hmm. is like that's like Thriller and 1999. And then Purple Rain. Um, and I saw, I went to see, actually went to see Prince um, on the Purple Rain tour. And Sheila E. was the opening act, which is another big sort of, you know, opening up of the world of drums to me. So Sheila E., she was the opening act. Her This is when she was, you know, uh, so the, before she was the drummer for Prince's band, she was her own entity. Glamorous life was her big hit, and um, and she just put on an incredible show. You know, she's amazing. It was all. It was at that point she was just like stand had a standing um, set with timbales and things, and she would you know throw her glowing in the air, sticks up in the air, and <laughs> glowing, glowing. <laughs> wait glow in the dark sticks up in the air and like spin around and and uh so this was I was 11 when I saw this this was like all in the very beginning of me you know getting into drums and um 
so that was like kind of like the beginning of seventh grade. And then by the end of seventh grade, I had totally like the kids that I became friends with at school uh, were the punkers. Like I just didn't, it was just like, that was my clearly my tribe of people were the punk rock kids, like whatever, all the other sort of social cliques, those were the people that I connected with and, um, you know, maybe being an angry child of divorce <laughs> was part of it. But, uh, uh, so, you know, so then through them, then it, then I, I started learning about the sex pistols and DOA and GBH and the exploited and, and, um, but I, I never really connected with hardcore, like, and this is like part of, I think, my, my, my musical DNA or whatever is that I always, I always was drawn to music that had like a, some, a discernible groove or something rhythmically happening like hardcore to me, like just is didn't there was not was, the drums were like completely uninteresting. There was nothing. It was just I just couldn't connect with it at all. It wasn't like a rhythmically interesting thing. It was to me. It was just all aggression and not actually any kind of. <clears throat> I didn't I didn't connect with it musically. Mm-hmm. Um, so the bands that that were a little more um, broad and experimental in their use of rhythm were the bands that I connected with more. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, like I loved the Buzzcocks, like that drummer is just phenomenal and, um, and the Clash and, and, you know, and DOA had their, like, reggae songs and mm-hmm. their, <laughs> you know, all of that. And, and, you know, and I love Bad Brains, too, who did do the hardcore thing, but they also obviously did all of that other stuff. And then, and even, and, you know, and then when they did, like, Eye Against Eye, which was a very rhythmic record. Um, so. Is that what was exciting about? like that discovery part because i just think hearing thinking of you meeting with your with your friends in school and in trading tapes and finding out about doa or or bad brains and and you kind of looking because i agree with you on hardcore like i've i kind of like i had a whole straight edge hardcore thing and i'm like that's the least that's the stuff i listen to next to zero now it was great for like a mm-hmm. six months and then i was like oh wait a minute there's this other band called sweep the leg Johnny that also is like kind of heavy, but then they have a saxophone. It's like everything was kind of, they were adding pieces to something that felt like just four on the floor, which like on mm-hmm. repeated listen. So did you feel, was there like a sense of like, Oh wow, there's people doing things differently. Like I want to keep digging. I want to keep finding. Um, that must've been a really exciting time for you. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, and you know, just that that whole thing of like going to the record store with a friend and you're just like 
side by side going through the bins. Oh, do you know this? Oh, have you heard this? Oh, have you heard this? Oh, if you like this, then you probably like this, you know, like that was just, and, and we, you know, once I was in unwound and we were touring all the time and that was definitely like a thing that Justin and I, and, and, and then our, we had a, like a early on, we had a roadie who came with us a bunch, um, everyone called dirty his name is Dustin but and he was definitely like played a big part of that like the three of us would be at the record stores just like do you know this do you know this blah, 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 you know and um and then I and I had a when I was like by the time I was back in Bloomington and like in my mid-teens um I was I became really good friends with uh, most of my friends were actually a little older, maybe college age. And so there was even more kind of interesting music filtering in through them. And I had friends that worked at the record store and who would, you know, like, oh, you should check out this band Scratch Acid, you know, you should check out this band. And then from there, Jesus Lizard. And, and uh, so... Yeah, and that was like that stuff really in particularly like I connected with because it was so groove oriented, you know. And that um that's just the music that I connected with much more. I actually I like the way they say that cuz I, I I think for me the the lyrics were always the last thing I remembered in a song. It was the guitar part because oh, yeah. I'm a guitar player or it was the drum beat and I can't play drums and I would mouth out whatever thing, I, whatever band I was in, you know, and I wouldn't make any sense, but I, it was like, I remember that stuff more than the lyrics. Um, and I just think there's that. Yeah. Do you feel that way? Where <laughs> It's like the lyrics yeah, for some reason, just like, uh, yeah, whatever they said, uh, I just wanted to feel something. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, there are some people like I, I, I got I had a huge Elvis Costello phase and, nice. and you know but I was like the you know, the music is what brought me there first. And then I was like, Oh god, this guy is a lyrical gangster <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know, like, like but uh but it was the music that got me right there first for sure. Like and you know, and I had friends for whom the lyrics is what got them there first. And, and I would, you know, and often I would be like, Oh, I just wasn't even, maybe I, I know what the words are because I've heard the song enough, but I'm not really even paying attention to what they're saying. Right. <laughs> um, or I'd be like, Oh, that's weird that you are like, like the Smiths. Like I couldn't stand the Smiths, but like the lyrics for the Smiths are like, what's, you know, kind of the most amazing part of it. And I, I've come to appreciate them, but I, at the time I was like totally dismissive of the Smiths and the Cure. I couldn't stand that stuff. (laughs) I'm able to appreciate them now, (laughs) but, but at the time, yeah. What about with like, with punk, what, why was it, why do you think you went that route? Other people, you know, they stick to the radio. And they listen to the radio and it's, and they just take what's given. What was, what, what hooked you into that discovery? I know you said your friends and going to the record store, but like even deeper, like why, why was that so enjoyable? Well, 
for one, I think the music that was on the radio in the late 80s is uh, fucking horrible. <laughs> you can say that about any so year, like, but yes, sure. The late 80s, yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, there were, there were, I mean, I think the radio was okay in the early 80s, but the late, like, okay. late 80s, that was just <laughs> garbage music. And, uh, and I know that the millennials are into it, but, you know, bless them. Uh, I... I don't know. I mean, I also was pretty anti-establishment pretty early on, you know, like more, definitely more drawn to the kind of counterculture. Uh, and, um, and then of course the, there's, there was, there was a music scene you know, in, in Bloomington, mm-hmm. there were bands and, uh, and then, ju- and that, and that was mostly punk bands. I mean, there was basically, there were cover bands that played at the college bars and then there were punk bands that played at house parties and that, and there, those, those were people that you have kind of like instant that you have connections with. Those are people that, you know, they're not um they're not these sort of you know glittery entities that you don't have anything in common with and nothing to do with like it was just you know i don't know they found the basement show or whatever. they at least if they found the <laughs> yeah. show you at least could go up to them and say do you dig fugazi yeah <laughs> yeah and you know yeah and and i and i started playing in bands when I was like 15 and so I was really early a part of and, and all with people that were older than me. Wow. Um, and so I, you know, was a part of the music scene at a really early age and it was just all, um, I don't know, in a way it just sort of like happened and I'm not really even sure how. <laughs> I was back in Bloomington, like eighty-seven to nine, nineteen ninety, mm-hmm. ninety, ninety-one. Um, so yeah, that was late eighties, and and I also and I still act because my dad was still in Olympia. I still had a, I would still go there. Like I always went there every summer, and I usually went there at Christmas and. So I, I kind of maintained a connection to what was happening in Olympia. And so I was sort of aware of some of the bands that were around, um, like Fits of Depression, mm-hmm. had that already existed at that point. Um, and, <clears throat> and I was friends with Mikey Dees, rest in peace, Mikey Nelson, as I knew him at that point. Um, and he was fits a depression guy. Mm-hmm. And then in Bloomington, I'm trying to think of the bands that were, because actually Bloomington was like a, was, is kind of off the, it's not on a regular route. And there weren't a lot of, <laughs> there weren't a lot of like bands that I wanted to see that would come through. I mean, there was a lot of music happening and, um, and then also it was almost entirely anyone that was on tour played in a bar and 
eventually I got a fake ID, but you know, the basement parties were just local bands. So, um, but I'm trying to pick a band that I snuck into see Babes in Toyland. Wow. Um, Urge Overkill. Uh, I did, you know, and then like I would travel to Indianapolis or Cincinnati sometimes to see shows. I saw Fugazi in Indianapolis. Uh, probably 90, maybe 89 or 90. And I saw, and I saw Jesus Lizard in Cincinnati and around then 10, then to 90, I think. Yeah. 1990. And, um, saw the circle jerks in Indianapolis. Um, uh, but the Fugazi and Jesus Lizard shows were like, you know, those were standout shows for me. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. What's interesting, I think. Oh, when, well. Yeah, and I would just, I would just randomly throw them out as I'm talking. Just throw out another band that you saw because I saw Jesus Lizard way later. Um, so David Yao was probably different than then, but it was still great. But it was just the, you know, in those in those special years or or moments. Um, yeah, I mean, I saw them at a fucking laundromat. That's in insane. <laughs> Wow. Mine was a little different. Yeah, Mine was a, a Canadian hockey arena <laughs> opening up yeah. for Rage Against oh. the Machine. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> little different. I think I would have I think they, I would have rather done the laundromat. Yeah. The most of the Jesus Lizard shows I saw were in small venues. They did I did see them open for Dinosaur Junior in Cincinnati at this place called Bogarts, which was not an arena by any stretch, but it was, you know, probably a couple, uh, you know, like five to 800 people as opposed to, you know, 200 or less where most, most of the shows that I saw them play were small and sweaty. What I actually was interesting when you said going back and forth between Olympia and Bloomington, I think as a kid, me going to Montreal for a show was like mind blowing. Because you saw the same shirts, Mm -hmm. but then you saw different shirts or the distro that was at the table was different or the food, not bombs thing was different. But it was like for you to be able to go back and forth. I mean, I guess I felt that then like you could just throw 4000 bands at me and I would, you know, take it all in. It just and then two different scenes and, you know, different almost areas. I just was two hours north from where I was. This was across the country. Did you sense yeah. that? You're like, oh man, I'm actually like learning a little bit more than maybe other friends that are just in my town. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I, like I saw, um, when I was in Olympia again, now we're, I'm doing, now I'm recovering some memories. So during that time <laughs> when I lived in Olympia in the, in the eighties, uh, so one huge eye-opening experience for me was having only lived in those tiny towns that where you, you know, where there's like 20 to 25 people in the scene and that's kind of it, you Mm -hmm. know? And then, 
and you know again this is the like this is the mid 80s and uh at that time bumbershoot in seattle was free and also seattle was still the edge of the universe and so it was not on anyone's radar really mm-hmm. <laughs> but um like this is pre microsoft uh but it was a, but bumbershoot was a big um music festival and there was and i went a couple times but there was one year i went and x and nina hagen were playing and that was and it was in the basic like the kind of the basketball arena Mm -hmm. and i was standing there and i was i believe i was 11 or 12 and i was standing there looking around (laughs) And I could not, I did not know that there were that many punk rockers in the world. Like I could not believe that there was an arena full of them to see X and Nina Hagen. And it just totally blew my mind. Um, And then, and then, and then X was absolutely amazing. And I was totally down in front and passed out because (laughs) it was too hot and gnarly and these very friend, these very sweet punkers like carried me, you know, helped me to the side and got me water and make sure I was okay because, and, uh, and then the other show from that time that sticks out to me was, um, the Melvins and the Descendants. And this is 1986. I still have the flyer and it actually was one of those rare flyers where they put the year on it. Uh, it was Danger Mouse, the Melvins, and the Descendants wow. at this place called Gas- Gasco in Olympia, and um, and the Melvins, you know, this was what you know they still lived in Aberdeen, and uh, and I distinctly remember Buzz saying something like, "We may not look like punk rockers, but we are," you know. <laughs> <laughs> And I remember Dale was just in his tidy whitey underwear and he had his spare drumsticks like shoved into the waistband of his underwear. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so that was also, and, it, and there were not that many people at the show either. Right. Uh, and the descent, and I went because I was, I really loved that Milo goes to college record by the descendants, which talk about like listening to those lyrics. Now I'm like, Oh my God. Right. <laughs> so you didn't know the Melvins beforehand. I'd heard of them. Heard of them. I had right. already heard of them. Yeah. And there was one time when I was there, there was one summer when I was there. It was, it was this was probably like 1989 or something and I was hanging out with my friend and she was like this is the band that everyone is really into now and pulls out bleach and wow. she's like this band is they're playing downtown at the at the Capitol Lake at the lake like there used to they used to have um shows at the outside at the lake in the park and uh, they're playing downtown at the lake today and and for some reason I didn't go and I always kick myself for not having gone to go see Nirvana at the lake in Damn. 1989. But <laughs> I guess I, I think that brings up a, 
a thing I want to ask is just like, I mean, literally seeing their, the Smells Like Teen Spirit video, I remember going upstairs and just telling my parents, I need a guitar immediately. I don't know where we're going to get one, but I need one immediately. My parents even joked about it, telling the story later. And it was just that, you know, instant um, attraction or sound, um, you know, being in Olympia. Um, what I loved most was the sort of the, you know, the dissonance of it. It wasn't just that it was loud, soft, but there was like a dissonance and an edge or sort of a crustiness to it um, when constructing a song or sounding um, when you were there was, was there, did you, did you sense that everyone was trying to do something different? Um, and did, because you're in these different areas, we're not as connected as we are. You're sometimes isolated. Um, was there something in the water? <laughs> um, well, you know, that kind of thing is, that's the kind of thing that became more apparent once I actually moved back there and I moved back there. This was, that's like things started to really flourish more starting mm -hmm. around 1991 and which is when I moved back there. So like being there in the eighties, maybe I wasn't as clued into it as much or it just wasn't, quite fomenting in that way or just my sort of ear wasn't quite sophisticated enough to n know that that's what was happening um but you know i so it so like in as i was living in when i was living in um back in bloomington my dad had gotten me a subscription to the rocket which was the mm -hmm. seattle weekly rag and so i kind of kept up to date on all the kind of what was happening in music and and i saw something in the rocket about this festival that was going to happen in olympia called the international pop underground convention um it was happening in august of 1991 and i was sort of just not really doing anything in Bloomington at that point. I had graduated from high school and was just kind of like, you know, working as a short, you know, in crappy jobs, a shorter cook or at Subway or something. And um, I was in a band that I enjoyed, but it was, but the guitar player was about to move to Chicago and just there wasn't, um, there wasn't really anything for me there. And I didn't necessarily think, oh, I'm going to move to Olympia. I just thought I'm going to go to Olympia for this festival. I'll stay with my dad for a while and then just try to decide what I'm going to do next. And um, so I, I, I actually took the train out and um, arrived the day that the IPU convention started and uh, just spent the next week like I mean, that festival was a total turning point in music, I think. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> there were bands from all over that came. You know, there was a big showing of DC bands and, you know, Fugazi played and Nation of Ulysses played. And, wow. 
Um, and uh, then, you know, there were bands, there were local bands as well, like Bikini Kill played an early show. Um, I think Bratmobile played their first show. Oh, wow. Uh, and then, the, and there are also bands from like the Pastels came from Scotland and uh, 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 Billy Childish was there. Um, it maybe even the head coat. I know that I remember seeing him do like a solo, like reading or something at this coffee shop, as well as seeing him play. I can't remember if it was just him or the head coats were also there. So there were people, you know, from all over and, um, and I, you know, I was mostly kind of like hanging out by myself. I was 18, I guess, just going. And I knew a, I knew a couple of people from when I lived there before. Um, but I was just sort of taking it all in and like observing the very clear scene dynamics that were already <laughs> taking shape mm-hmm. that would like kind of um, identify or sort of uh that's the word I'm thinking of. Define <laughs> sort of define the Olympia scene like almost unfortunately, you know, for the next decade. But um so I could see right away like, oh, those are the cool kids. Really? In this way where I was like, oh, they're kind they kinda of gross me out, these cool kids. And then he these are the people that seem more approachable because I, I was also like hyper aware being from the Midwest like there was a very there's just a different way people just are different yeah. on the West Coast than they are from the Midwest and there was, there was just this like very clear artifice that was just like glaring to me and uh, and was very off-putting um, and I I, I always, you know, even when I was like fully embraced by that scene and by all terms that have been considered the cool, a cool kid as well, I was very like put off by that and um, def- was more drawn to actual uh, personal connections versus whatever. Right. But it seemed like, I mean, (laughs) yeah, exactly. But this, you know, the, I remember just some things reading about that, that festival, you know, it had sort of a DIY ethic, um, you know, having that sort of, you know, ethos, it seemed like they were kind of pushing, pushing the uh, agenda on certain things. Did you feel that or was it just same old scene bullshit? No, there was definitely some, well, it wasn't. Same old scene bullshit to me, to me because it was that was uh, that was kind of new to me, right? You know, so um, it was like, oh, this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I see, I see this happening here, and um, why can't people just be normal with each other like they are where I live, <laughs> where <laughs> I came from? Or <laughs> people are people. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, you know, there was a lot of, um, you know, like peacockery, <laughs> basically mm-hmm. a lot of that, uh, 
kind of just showing off, you know, coolness and, um, and hierarchy, scene hierarchy. And it was just really, it was like so immediately clear to me. Um, and I was really put off by it and it wasn't until, you know, I got like I was but I got to know some of those people that I was able to be like oh this is just insecure you guys are just insecure I get it <laughs> I can I can relate to that right yeah you know, you know. <laughs> and what about being there and you know starting to I mean you're you've I really you know like what you've said because it's just sort of this evolution and and where you're at and sort of you know, meeting, meeting folks and playing with them. You did back in Bloomington and now um, being in Olympia and, you know, you've definitely the unwound story has been told, um, you know, you guys meeting up and things, what, what clicked for you guys and what was enjoyable um, when you, when you started playing with them, what were some things that you remember? It's kind of one of those unnamed unnameable magical experiences I think where it just was immediately clear I think to all of us the first time that the that I played with them that this was gonna that this was right and this was gonna work like I came away from that practice just not having any doubt in my mind that I was in the, that I got the job. Wow. <laughs> it, it was, it was like a, I guess it was an audition in that they had, I mean, we would never have used such pro words at that time, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, um, you know, it was, you know, they had tried playing with a couple other people after Brant quit and, this was just trying to play with me and just to see what it was like, but it was so instantly clear that, uh, yeah. And I don't, I don't, it's, it's definitely one of those things where I, it's not really nameable. Like I think in a way that band or what they were, what was, what happened, uh, in that room just like made sense traject musically trajectory wise for mm-hmm. me like i had been <clears throat> the um uh, one of the bands that i played with in bloomington was this band called the belgian waffles which was a very just like super experimental very noisy experimental band um and uh, and then the other band that I had in Bloomington, which was called Mo, <laughs> nothing to do with the band Mo that became popular. Uh, but, and we were more like, we had this, there was a little more of a pop sensibility in there, but also some, we also had like kind of groovy dirges as well as some sort of more kind of a, a more upbeat kind of um, experimental pop punk, I guess, that Unwound also 
did with some with some of our songs so there was just like it was like a natural progression um and um so yeah it just like made perfect sense in that moment and you know Vern was like <laughs> an unbelievable bass player like I I you know whatever he was doing just to like connecting with what as a rhythm section you know locking in with what he was doing right was just like an instant connection what i love about the sound and why i asked about sort of like where where that clicked is there's and it brings me to talk about constructing a song but there's like space there's there's moments to listen to specific things from all all of the instruments and there's things to pick out and even if it is re- re- repeating itself there is a certain rhythm to it what about constructing songs together and w- what was that like for you and you know being able to know when to play and when not to you know there's always the joke mm-hmm. that the drummer's got to do the crazy solo the the bass wants his moment it seemed like there was this flow between it and i could be completely wrong and you can tell me if i am but that felt like there was like there was a feeling of space so when constructing a song how did how did that come to be um <clears throat> No, you, I think you're you can right. tell me I'm wrong. Um, okay, all right, I'm right. No, all right, I, fine. I, 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 I think <laughs> for once, um, <laughs> I, I think that um, we we just we spent a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of time practicing, and we would spend, and they were just like epic, you know, many hours multiple times a week and I spent a lot of time listening and that to me like that's the sort of like here's the number one piece of advice that I give to all musicians (laughs) but you know especially drummers but well maybe not especially drummers I say especially drummers because I am a drummer and I teach drum lessons but I want, cause I want the other people to do it too, <laughs> Yes. but listening, li- like listening, like having good listening skills where you're really hearing what the other people are doing and how they are connecting and finding the way that you can connect with each one of them. And so I spent like, there was a lot of, a lot of times uh, where the two of them were figuring out their, how their parts would, you know, intermingle like melodically and rhythmically. And they spent, they would, it was just like, you know, playing the same thing over and over again for hours and hours. And I would just be, and I would sit there and listen. And then, and I would listen for where and how I could essentially be a part of it (laughs) and and um and sometimes it meant 
just locking in with the bass, but the bass was also locking in with the guitar. Sometimes it meant playing off of the guitar. Sometimes it just meant playing off of what was happening between, you know, I'm I'm sitting here sticking my, interweaving my fingers in front of my face. You can't see them. (laughs) I was actually making that same expression with my hands. I was like, the way that this like moves in and out. And like, I just, I love that you said listening. Because anytime you're in a band, you're just sitting there being like, I can't wait to show my riff. I can't wait to show, right. you know, well, instead of being like, wow, that bass note, I should listen to that root note. And then I, you know, and or like yeah. you said, letting something drone and letting it happen for two minutes before you come in. Yeah. Yeah. And I did like that. That I don't I can't really explain why or how I I can't say that it's something that I learned because I feel like it's just something that was instinctive in me from the very beginning of of playing with other people um I don't know I mean maybe like the first time (laughs) the first time I really my very first experience of you know like playing with other people being like a sophomore in high school and my two friends you know one played bass one played guitar and like we were the three people who played those three instruments in our class and so we would get together after school and it was really just like oh the guitar player is just fucking doing whatever he wants like it completely does not matter that either one of us are the same right (laughs) um and so that might have been my like boy that's annoying wouldn't it be great (laughs) wouldn't it be great if a band was of a bunch of people that listened to each other while they were playing um so, uh, but yeah, I mean, I feel like really kind of just, that was just instinctual for me from the beginning of like developing as a, as a actual musician, when you kind of get beyond the, like, I'm just learning the basics of right how to sit here and move my body and start and then start developing like as a style, um, that listening was always, um, uh, a huge part of it that and then the other thing for me was like whatever I would do first instinctively like what seemed like the easiest thing I would I would then change it like whatever whatever the obvious thing was I wanted to do that not that uh, there's no such thing as the opposite of it <laughs> but like whatever the easiest you know most obvious thing was uh, okay, now I know what that is. So now I'm going to do something. And now I've got my hands in front of my face <laughs> and I'm making this symbol of like <laughs> gesture of a ball flipping over. <laughs> uh, That's a really good yeah. instinct though, because you're almost like continually, continually, sorry, now I can't say words. You know, you're just constantly you know, telling yourself to try something new. Yeah. And that was, you know, because to me, like I wanted to be a musician, you know, not like there really is in the, in the world of, in the realm of drumming, (laughs) there's lots and lots of jokes about, let's say the drummers aren't musicians. Um, And 
like the drums as a musical instrument was just uh was really important to me like to be able to for this to be like this is my creative expression this is my this is like I'm making this musical I'm not just here to keep a beat like I'm here to improve on what's going on I'm here to like add my flavor my bedazzling Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm here to bedazzle this (laughs) (laughs) no I totally get that though like it's just the the uh, and someone that's has a discerning ear or wants to hear something that isn't just four on the floor and have something else to um perk up their ears um that's really important um you know, for you, those those first few songs or those first few shows, did you did you sense that, like you said, you felt it in those first practices or this felt great? But, you know, and I want to get into touring because I think there's some interesting, you know, things that you guys, uh, the bands and things that you toured with. But did you feel that reaction of people getting it? And was it that was it the right audience um, for people to? or the first, like the right shows for people to kind of get into it. What were, did, does that make sense? I do. Yeah, it does. Um, it, you know, it's interesting. We, I feel like we had a lot of experiences of, of a very like still stunned <laughs> audience. Mm-hmm. I think to put it, to not be able to, you know, of, of like people just standing there, staring <laughs> and not moving and not necessarily even like clapping that much. But then afterwards, people coming up and just gushing, you know, wow. like, like they were standing there like because they didn't know what to do. <laughs> They're like, what is going on? I don't understand what's happening here. That is hilarious. Like no sound, no clapping, but then going up to you and being like, give me one of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Like tumbleweed. And then afterwards just being like, what? And, you know, and I got a lot of crap about, I mean, not negative crap, but weird stuff, reactions for being, you know, a, a female because that was incredibly rare at that time. Um, so that was, I had to have a lot of awkward conversations about that. And you, and early on, you know, like we were touring. So like our local shows, by the time I joined the band, Unwound was already a, an established band. And right. like Justin and Vern were known entities and Justin was like, you know, embraced by the older cool kids as the next Kurt or whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> or whatever. And um, uh, so, like, and you know, but you know, it we changed. The band changed a lot when I when I joined. Like, we didn't we didn't play any of the old songs, and and the new songs that we wrote were different from the ones that they had played with Brant. Um, so there was, I think there were some people, a couple of diehard fans of the 
original version who missed the more kind of like Rites of Spring uh, energy. Um, I mean, we still had energy, but we got, we got, you know, we instantly got a little weirder. Yeah. <laughs> and this is why I joined the band. And so I think there were some people who took a moment to adjust to that. But um, what about playing outside you know, of Olympia? A, yeah. But so, yeah, playing outside of Olympia, that was when we had the weird, that's when we had the, the crickets followed by the gushing. Um, and, and, you know, the shows were all, you know, these were all just sort of book your own fucking life. Right. Hand, handbook, uh, tour, setting up our own tours, playing all ages shows that wherever people would have us. And so very, very random audiences, like early on, you know, not, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily just the, you know, the scenesters that were there. There were also often like random older dudes with mullets who wandered by and, or like, you know, like, oh, I like live music. <laughs> right. Live music happening here tonight, you know. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so lots of, you know, and also like, the sound guys at all those places. There wasn't. There weren't people like us doing sound. They were like the the, the more stereotypical, like you know, classic rock. Mm-hmm. Um, or the guy had three jobs. Least, he was also the yeah. barback. Yeah, they they were just always telling us to turn down, turn down, turn down, turn down, and. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but we didn't, we, yeah, we didn't, we didn't usually play at bars unless, uh, unless they had some kind of, unless the laws in that state allowed to X up underage kids or yeah, the X is on the hands. Yeah. Um, or sometimes it, you know, a little later we got, you know, when we got a little more clout then we would maybe do a bar show if we could also do an all ages show elsewhere in town or nearby or something. But we, we stuck with the all ages thing for most of, until we got booking agents and then we still would try to do that. But then they would be like, if you actually want to come home with any money in your pocket, you have to play a bar, you know, uh, but yeah, so really, you know, I we played a dojo in Minot, North Dakota, and VFW halls, and just all the kind of you know basements and yeah, lots of basements across the world land. You knew that 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 had to have been, you know, the the way that so many people saw you. It wasn't going to be. Um, just posting uh, social updates. Um, there wasn't that, and you had to get out and and play. And do you think about that, like the the instant reaction you get, or endorphins from the you know a, a social thing online now versus then when you might have played a show in North Dakota and there was however many people there and five pe- people came up to you and you had to wait another twenty three hours and fifteen minutes to play again. Um, 
Did you, did you, have, I, have I, you thought about that? <laughs> I always do. I, <laughs> I have no idea. I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't connect to, I don't understand. I, I, I do not get the modern, <laughs> the modern way of, of, of being in a band and connecting with music. Like I feel like such a freaking dinosaur around that stuff. But uh, there are so many bands and the whole like scene thing has been blurred out where it's just like people play all kinds of different people are drawn to playing music and play music. And it's not like, I mean, I think there it the, the like punk kids in the basement thing still exists. Um, but I'm not a kid, so I don't know about it. Exactly. Don't we don't know where things. this is. They're listening to us now. Yeah. They'll let us yeah. know, but they know, not us. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know it still exists. I know there are still, and I know that the DIY thing still exists. Um, it's just not in front of my face anymore. Right. Um, and, and I, and there's just a lot about the way that the music world um, works now that I completely don't get, um, I don't understand how you're supposed to like, how you wave your hand above the giant sea of billions of bands for people to notice you and hear you, (laughs) you know, and it it just seems like even more so. And I think this is, you know, whoever the better you are. And this is, you know, this has always been true. If you're ambitious and you're good at PR, then you're more people are going to know about you, but it seems like it's more that than ever. It's more of that kind of less of the, of the meritocracy of like, Oh, the music you're making is really good. And so people find you and, that's how people find out about you. It's more of the, oh, you're really good at marketing yourself. And that's why people know about you. And that's why you're popular. Yeah, it definitely feels that. Or there, there's less of a, of an idea to, to take a chance on a longer term of like, Hey, we're going to do this thing for three or four years. It's almost like there's not enough time um, to be able to, have a year under your belt before you do anything or have two years under your belt before you do X, Y, and Z. It seems like there's like this acceleration and some people excel at that. And I feel like there's some bands that if they had that shot, where would they be or what would they sound like without the constant, I need to check my likes. I need to check how many people follow um, when it, it just kind of should I guess that's, that's the age old, but what's interesting about this time period. And I think the late nineties is especially, I was in college in in the mid late nineties and internet was starting to go. And it was kind of this shift where there were people that, you know, bands had an AOL address or, you know, their, their PO box on the CD. And then it turned into sort of this website and it was such a you know, shift again, where people were, Oh, I'm going to, I understand the internet more. Um, and it kind of, it seemed, it seemed things were speeding up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By then, like we never had a, <laughs> we never had a website. Uh, 
and I think by then we had, um, by the late 90s, we had a booking agent um, and would be and would like hire someone to do publicity for us, which just meant doing an interview with the local uh, right. weekly newspaper and weekly rag or whatever in whatever town we were playing in. Like we never, we had almost no like magazine. It was zines. It was just, it was totally zines. It was zines and it was the, you know, local weekly rag. And that was it. Like we had the one, um, Oh my God, I'm forgetting the name of the magazine. Were they called Magnet? Yes, Magnet was one. Yeah. So we had one big spread in Magnet, and that was basically it. Wow. (laughs) As far as, like, glossy uh, write-ups. But you were still going. uh, So with you had the publicist, are you booking these shows on your own? I was actually going to mention a few shows that I saw because you do have an amazing website that I want to bring up later, which brings up my second love, which is archival, which is your library world. But I just quickly Uh to mention sort of the, you were doing these shows, like what was the, where did you all have other part-time jobs? You were touring so much, or did you feel a momentum of this is working? We're going to keep going. Yeah, there was the momentum, and we, we life was incredibly cheap still in right. Olympia. Like, we our rents were, you know, negligible. So, you know, I think some of us, I think, you know, sometimes, <laughs> no, Justin ever had a job. Vern <laughs> <laughs> and I had, like, part-time jobs that we would um, pop in and out of when we were home from tour and um, or you know the last couple years maybe well the last the very last couple years when we were working on Leaves Turn Inside You then we we weren't touring and um, we all had to have jobs but uh, but in the sort of like kind of late nineties then we were, we were touring constantly and, um, and living very cheaply. And so we didn't really have jobs and, and, and it was, um, and yeah, it was, it was this kind of, it was, a, it, I guess it's the, what's, what is great about it is that we, we didn't have, any we didn't have major publicity and it didn't matter like what we did was we toured all the time and people you know we would hit a city twice if you hit a city twice in a year then people are the people that saw you are going to bring friends and then yep. you know and it just builds builds that way word of mouth and and there was a, you know, still a lot of the, um, a big sort of like pen pal mm-hmm. scene, you know, in the, in that, in the nineties DIY world of like people sending each other zines and tapes and records. And, and so, you know, like, oh, my friend from Milwaukee saw you guys. And so told me, you know, 
and sent me a tape and or put some songs on a mixtape or whatever. And so I came to see you in Denton or, you know, wow. <laughs> no, right. thing, you know, and there's that time, there's that dis that thing of like waiting. I remember waiting for a girlfriend in college to send me a mixtape and I like ran up to the mailbox every day. But I think about that now <laughs> and being like, yeah. yeah, I definitely waited for the mail, but I was doing other stuff. Now it's just refresh, 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 wait for yeah. more email. Right. <laughs> So I, I, I miss that. Some of the shows that I saw, and I love the website, um, the um, Unwound Archive. I think it's absolutely beautiful. Um, you know, seeing there was a show on there. I forgot that was in Burlington, Vermont, where I grew up. Um, it was Fugazi and, and Karate mm-hmm. in 95. I wanted to go to that show. My parents wouldn't let me because it was on like a Thursday or something. And I was so pissed. And Ugh. for some reason, I got in touch with karate. I don't know how. And they agreed to do my high school zine. And now it is, it was their first ever interview. Oh, really? Which is super <laughs> random. Yeah, Eamon, or Eamon, I think it's Eamon. Um, he literally emailed me. It was for my high school zine of three issues. Thank you very much. I stole whatever copier I went in and made copies for school. Um, okay. But that ended, I saved it. Um and ended up, um, you know, remembering the flyer and, um, you know, do you writing those things down, like letting, um, you know, that sent me on a, you know, memory to be like, Oh my God, I remember that show, this happened, this, or seeing that you guys played with Rand Maria or Polvo or Brainiac. Um, can you talk about that, um, that archive and who had all those dates and what was it like putting that together? Yeah, well, I have to say that Justin did the vast majority of that work. And he did a lot of the early tour booking. Um, I think he even has a story about this wasn't, I'm actually not even sure if this was an Unwound tour, if this was one of his other bands at the time, but he had a couple of other bands, but he had a tour where he, that he had booked all making phone calls and he had had it all written down on a piece of paper on one piece of paper. And then like some coffee spilled on it. And basically it meant the tour couldn't happen. Because... That's amazing. <laughs> Cause it all like washed away the ink. You're like, Oh, I have no idea what these shows are. <laughs> Is that Austin um, or Aurora? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> um, uh, so, I mean, we all dug through whatever stuff that we had. Um, and I think there's there are a couple of tours up there that are still like, we don't oh, know. Shoot, somehow we don't, we don't know what this is. Um, but yeah, I think that he, I, I have to credit Justin for, um, for that website for the most part. I mean, I, I gave what I had, but I didn't do very much in terms of, uh, building it or, or sort of laying it out or anything like that. Was this around the um, time of the reissues that you did with Numero Group or was well, this prior? It, it kind of, it actually coincided. It was sort it was, it was prior, but we had, cause we had just been 
we've just gotten together to talk about doing it, um, doing the building this website and feel like we had other ideas that maybe we were going to try and do like the um, doing put that live leaves record that came out, mm-hmm. which was, uh, you know, like this kid recorded almost most of the shows on that tour. And so, so we always knew like, Oh, these tapes exist. And um, it wasn't until then that we, actually sat down and went through them all and picked out the stuff to go on the that and we yeah it all kind of happened so this there was this guy named Adam Reach in Chicago who worked for Touch and Go who's like a super fan <laughs> and he can't even remember how I connected with him, but I was on tour with someone else. I think I was on tour maybe with the Corin Tucker band and we played in Chicago and we had been talking about, you know, and had been talking about doing this live leaves thing. And he basically said he had was partnering with Henry Owings of Chunklet <laughs> and Adam Reach did they he cut he basically came to us and said they came to us and they said we've been doing this thing where we like help people put out records we just sort of like help fund it like adam through working essentially i think he was like the production manager at touch and go so he had all of the mm-hmm. connections for actually putting a record together and then and the two and henry and adam would like front the money and so he they were like, we want to help you put this out. And also Adam was like, and by the way, there's this label called Numero Group. And and I was like, the label that puts out all the soul records? (laughs) Yeah, I know that label. (laughs) I have a bunch of their compilations. Yeah. And he was like, okay, well, they want it. They're interested. So he, he put their name in my ear and I think... Um, and I'm not sure if I don't actually think that he made the first connection, but cause Henry also Henry, uh, does a lot of, um, layout stuff for them. In fact, he did the layout for all of our box sets. So there's just some sort of like inner connection there with right. Henry and Henry Owens, Adam Reach, numero group guys. Um, <clears throat> so it all just kind of happened at the same time. Like we had already, we had, essentially like shaken the trauma of the band breaking up Mm -hmm. off a little bit and like sat down at a table together for the first time. And, you know, I don't even know almost 10 years or something. And we're like, okay, it's time to claim our legacy. You know, (laughs) now we're in this new millennium and the World Wide web exists. And the only thing that's out there about us is stuff that people, other people have put up. So maybe we need to actually like take a little ownership of our legacy. Um, and people still seem to care about the band. So let's not blow that off. 
let's not let that slip through our fingers. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it was around putting 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 together that website did predate the then the the numero reissues. It just and I think that the website probably would have been more if numero mm-hmm. hadn't like I think we would have we probably would have ended up putting yeah, but then numero kinda came in and made it so that we didn't have to <laughs> we didn't have to do that. Um did it feel good? doing all those oh yeah it did i mean it was a good way to you know doing the uh, the person that we asked to do the liner notes was a close friend um david wilcox he had been he had been a friend that like he he was in houston and you know he was like our friend in houston who we always crashed with and then he came with us and was um, sold merch on our last tour and he's a writer and he he did a tour journal that he that Your Flesh put mm-hmm. out in two different issues and he also kept this hysterical food diary that <laughs> popped up somewhere I can't remember how that and it was it was published somehow maybe it was just on the web or something but at a certain point the last tour was you know, nine eleven happened right in the middle of it. So there was it was a very strange, chaotic tour. And you know, you gotta figure out ways to keep morale up. <laughs> so the food diary was right. one of them where every time we'd all get in the van, everyone had to report what food they had eaten. And then at the end of the day he would like give out an award for the for I don't know, like either the most bizarre random selection of food or like you actually managed to eat healthy today or <laughs> I can't believe all you ate today was pixie sticks and jerky or whatever, you know. <laughs> but I think that's, that's so anyway. no, I love that because it, it, it brings, it brings um, color and it's different. And I sometimes always talk about sort of there's um, you know, delivering the story, not just the master. You know, you've got this master of album, the record itself, but there's so much to it. And I think the time and effort you guys took into the liner notes and the packaging and having all your music available um, is putting that stake in the ground for people to find out about you guys today. Um, Yeah. And, you know, for having friends like that that wrote those things down those are I also I almost think the most normal photos are sometimes more interesting, like a photo of your bedroom that you just took by accident with your camera um, back in the day in the 80s might be more exciting than the planned photo with your family because you can look at the wall. Yeah. See what's on the shelf. Mm-hmm. I did want to say about the process of the um, doing those liner notes. Yes. Was. Uh, incredibly healing and cathartic to sort of talk through the whole experience of being in the band and then breakup of the band. And it was, you know, the the end and the breakup was, was a, it was a traumatic thing for all of us. And we all sort of like went off and didn't deal with it in our own 
different ways and um, to be able to, you know, the fact that David was a trusted close friend that we all could, you know, mm-hmm. be very comfortably and freely with and, and had, you know, been there and seen firsthand some of the things that we were talking about. It was very, um, it was really healing and it was really, uh, so the whole experience of, of putting, putting out these box sets has been, uh, has been really great, you know, and of course the, the reaction has, is really nice to know that we hold up, we stand the test of time and, um, and that we continue to, you know, touch people who, you know, maybe who never even got a chance to see us, which of course, you know, that was my experience as an early listener of music. I mostly was really into bands that didn't exist by the time I discovered them or whatever. And it's interesting to think like, because we were such a, we toured so much and played so many live shows and like, our shows were not consistently great, but mostly pretty good. That, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, and, and, and I and I often thought of our albums as being, you know, a little like unformed because we so often would record them, record the songs before we toured them. And they don't, and they just kind of become a different thing after mm-hmm. you've played them so many times so that was a nice thing about the live leaves record and being able to put out and including uh, some of the like older songs on there that you know evolved of the feet had evolved yeah like the first few records in particular like some of the songs weren't even done by the you know lyrics hadn't been written most of the songs the lyrics weren't written until it was time for him to actually record the vocals. So, um, yeah. I love that you said about the reissues and sort of the having someone trusted, figuring out the story, talking about it, letting those things go. Um, I think about that too, from, you know, interviews I've had in the past where, um, you know, sometimes the, the people aren't around, no one's around forever, you know, and, and the, I've, we've all had loss. Um, there's things that have reminded me of, you know, I did, um, John Bunch from Sensefield. I did his last ever interview and I put him in the second book. And if I only sold one to his wife for his kid to read, I'd be fine. Mm. Like it's that important. Like, and so for you to get those voices when it is in time and have it there, um, I don't know. I feel like there's just a clock above me of just being like, I've got to get, th-. that's why I started the podcast. No one talked to my heroes. There was no podcast talking to the people that I loved and these bands, no one. And I just said, there's no voice. And so for you guys to have that in that form and the way numero group does that, um, it's almost like it's, I love that you got together then and you were able to do it. And I'm sure it yeah. was, it was hard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and really worth it, obviously. Like it was really a good, a good thing all around. After the band, and these are the last few questions I promise. I love, he went back to school. 
um, and the sort of the learning and, and listening. That's what you got to do in class. You got to listen. Um, um, can you can you talk about the the degree? Because actually, it's really it's funny. I work with people in this field right now, <laughs> like in my day job. So um, was that just something that um, it just popped out of a book and said, I'm going to do this? Or was there another reason why you went into the research and informational field? Yeah, well, and I am ashamed to say that I am not in that field, that my you went experience to school for in it, that though, right? field basically started and ended with my <laughs> experience in grad school. Really? Um, yeah. I um, My decision to go to school was essentially one of those plan B, like, I don't I don't appear to be uh, making a living as a musician anymore, and that doesn't seem nothing is like presenting itself in a way that is appealing to me. So I need to figure out something else to do. And um, I, I mean, I'm an information geek, so like. I and have always been kind of one of those people that's like, oh, you're interested in this? Here, I'm going to send you <laughs> this article that is related to this thing that you said you're interested in. Or like, oh, you, this is something that interests you. I know this other person that is interested in that. So I'm going to connect the two of you. Like I've always like connecting people with information has always just been like uh instinct of mine anyway and um and <laughs> kind of what happened was I was on a, a a family trip with my my husband at the time and his family and his mom was a librarian and I think she was saying this for the benefit of my of her other son of my brother-in-law who was a little at at loose ends. She basically said a librarian is what smart people who don't know what to do become. And I was like, huh, that kind of applies to me. (laughs) 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 And so I, it was a little bit of a whim to decide to do it. And I never, I mean, I don't know, it was, you know, to go to grad school is a whim. I mean, I don't know. I think other people do that too. They're like, I don't know what else to, I don't know what to do right now. It's often a midlife crisis mood. mood. (laughs) Like, oh shit, what do I do now? I guess I'll go to grad school. Um, and, uh, and I, 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 the program that I did was, through the University of Washington, but it was online. And, you know, at the time, this is like the kind of the, let's see, this was, this would have been like 2006 to 2009. It was a three-year degree. And they were just getting it up and running, this distance learning. And so it was, it was, kind of clunky mm-hmm. and um and we would go to the campus 
usually at the beginning of each quarter for like one day of in-person classes and then everyone would scatter back. And, um, and it was hard. Like I didn't, I didn't do well. I didn't really connect with it. Like I stuck with it and I stuck with it pretty much for the sake of like not wanting to be a quitter. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, you know, being in a, in a classroom full of other people where the exchange of ideas is more organic and, um, spontaneous. Like, you know, I, I got my undergraduate degree at Evergreen, which is all about the seminar. Like you spend your whole time just in a group of people talking about your ideas. And that was also the, high school that I went to in Bloomington was a small alternative school that was also all about a small group of people sitting in a room talking about their ideas. And so the online forum of like posting, like you read a thing and then you post a response to it. Like that just was not I didn't, like that just seemed like busy work and it didn't seem natural to me and 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 also the I think the thing that you get from being from like standing up in front of a group of people like that (laughs) that practice of standing up in front of a group of people and talking about something that you just learned a lot about uh is really valuable that you get with an in-person school situation, which was not something, you know, the presentations that we gave were just like pre-recorded PowerPoint things. And, and also being the, like getting to building relationships with your cohort, Mm -hmm. that's what leads to jobs in the field. Like that's what, that's probably the biggest value that people get out of a graduate school education is those, is the networking and Mm -hmm. the, relationships and I just barely made any relationships at all in the school because I didn't get to know anyone right and 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 then my last quarter of school I was pregnant and then I graduated and had a baby and was like I'm not gonna go fucking try and get a a new job in a new field that I have no confidence in while I'm in the middle of this other thing that I have no confidence, this other new thing Mm -hmm. that I have no confidence in, which is caring for a human life. (laughs) So it just, it just like, it just never launched for me. Like I did work very briefly. It started, I did an internship while I was in school, um, doing research at a design firm. And then that eventually led to, uh, I did end up working there, uh, a part-time job, like when my son was like two. Um, but it was the, the internship was a really amazing, great experience. So there was a really great, interesting team of people that I was working with. And then when I went back there, like all those people had either left or left within the first two weeks of me getting there. It was like, obviously like things were really weird at the company. Like there was just a huge shift happening. So then I was like, 
kind of at sea, not really, and it wasn't really clear what my job was, and nobody really knew why I was there. Oh, my it God. It didn't last very long. <laughs> um, it was like, you're not putting in enough billable hours, you know. <laughs> that It was a, one of those situations where you have to, like, account for, you know, it was, it was an interesting uh, peek into the corporate world uh, enough to know that it was not, that was not a world I wanted anything to do with. Um, but I do, I, I have experienced it. So I know a little bit about it. Right. So I've, can, 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 and can, you know I've that you that don't want to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so the next thing I did for work was, um, I spent four years working uh, at an elementary school as like a reading assistant. And that was, that was really uh, fantastic. I really loved doing that. I worked, it was, I started off doing that. Um, I started off my son. It actually started because of library stuff. When my son started kindergarten, um, I to the school librarian um, the person who was right she wasn't actually a librarian she was a library assistant I said you know hey Allie I actually have a library degree and if you want any help I'm happy to you know come help out as a volunteer so I was there I was also like completely freaked out by uh, my son being <laughs> going to right. going to a large like Greenwald Loud Bell Institution <laughs> Public School in kindergarten, my little baby. Um, I was like, what about this place is nurturing? <laughs> it didn't feel like it just felt it was so traumatic to me every time I walked in that building that I was like, I need to be in this building on a more regular basis to mm-hmm. sort of like you know, have it normalized for me and also to just feel like things were okay there. It is actually the worst performing school in the entire state of Oregon. But at any rate, um, uh, so I spent his kindergarten year volunteering at the library and then they, then the schools got funding to hire a school. Everyone had to get us a librarian. So I talked to the principal and she was like, well, I can't give you that job because you have to be a certified teacher, um, a certified teacher librarian, which is a totally different degree. So I actually looked into that because, you know, for years, school librarians were basically all laid off. Right. And then all of a sudden there was this, oh, wait, we got to get school librarians back in all the schools. So then there was this shortage <laughs> of school librarians. So I thought about it, but it was like, oh, another $25,000 and, you know, a year or two of grad school. And, uh, and what if I didn't like it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but, so then she said, like, but I do have this other job coming up, which is uh, an educational assistant uh, um, with an emphasis on reading, which is basically, you know, either pushing in or pulling out kids who were struggling with reading. And there was quite a bit of that at this school. Um, So I spent four years doing that. um, And it was, 
very rewarding, very challenging, very rewarding. It was, it's a, it's a predominantly, you know, lower income minority school and, um, met some just unbelievably amazing kids and had the experience of like knowing that I made an impact on these kids' lives and seeing things click for them and, you know, also the pain and the struggle of, you know, like there was a kid that I worked with every day whose father was killed by the police in the middle of the school year and wow. and sort of sitting with her and her, you know, trauma and grief through the rest of the year. Meanwhile, trying to convince her that she still needed to learn her vowel sounds, you know. <laughs> wow. Uh, <clears throat> Both my parents and, were teachers. And I would hear stories again, I was a kid still, but I would hear sometimes they, they'd talk with each other and they would tell when someone in a certain grade, they're like, they're, they're going to make it. Or, you know, I just met with their parents and this, it's like, there's so many different factors that I just think it's a miracle. Like you said, there are all yeah. these things happening. You're just like, I just need you to learn your vowels. I promise that it'll, <laughs> that yeah. it'll help you. Yeah. But like those, <clears throat> those, those moments in someone's life, like kids, or not kids, anyone our age, they're going to, you're going to remember those teachers. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that you yeah. were, that you were feeling that impact, um, and being able to make a difference, um, must've felt amazing. Yeah, it, it was, it was great. And, you know, and I still, I think about those kids and I have dreams about them and I worry so much for them this last year of, you know, I know that so many of them have completely fallen off the radar with school going online and it's like when I think about it too much it starts to make me really emotional when I think about right. some of these kids that I that I know like there's not there's no structure in their home to make sure that right you know they're not and I'm sure they just disappeared and I was already gone from that job by the time this happened but um yeah, but it's still like it's actually the people in my neighborhood. It's the neighborhood school, so there's like you know there are kids that I see on my block who I worked with and stuff. So ultimately, like the pay for that job is very minimal, and so from the very beginning, I had to supplement that with I started teaching drum lessons, and then it got to the point where I was working so much like I basically had the school job was you know was half time and it got me a really good insurance which which was great but like the my paycheck didn't even cover my mortgage so then I had to teach the uh, start teaching drum lessons and as I was getting more and more of those I started I got to the point where I had to turn people away because I didn't have you know enough time in my schedule also like being a single parent and then so ultimately I made the decision to leave the school job and just you know go for the job that made <laughs> made more money it with less work you know do I keep the job that pays me $15 an hour or the job that pays me $50 an hour <laughs> what right. job should I stick with <laughs> so so I just uh it was I left the school job at the end of the um, 2018 school year. So 
I've just been doing drum lessons since then. What I love too is that you said you were that you have an affinity to adults for teaching. Yeah. <laughs> well, in part that partially came from at the time I was also working at the school and I was like a, and had an elementary age kid and was like <laughs> I need to actually spend a little time with have an adult like, conversation. Hey. <laughs> yeah, like can I <laughs> um and and since then, like I, I have a couple of kids students that I really enjoy working with, but it but I do I do enjoy I love working with beginner adults. It's it's that's my favorite um, my favorite demographic, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, and it's really interesting to uh, to see how things connect or don't connect with all of them because because it's so there's like just the mind body connection thing is something that as adults we're a little more in tune with or if we're Mm -hmm. not then we can become more in tune with it like it's not something you think about as a kid at all and so it's and that is something that I find really fascinating about learning something like drums as an adult just like making these new kind of neural connections um, to get your poor limbs to do something independently. And, and I, and a lot of my students are like, they don't have any aspirations to play in front of people or, you know, maybe they want to jam with their friends, but, or some of them are in, in bands, but it's really just like, this is an hour that I've carved out for me. <laughs> you know, it's almost like a therapy session, our, our lesson times, you know, like here I am, I'm just doing this thing that is just, I'm just doing it because it's fun. That's why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because it's fun. And like, why, why you play drums because playing drums is fun. If you're not having fun, then don't do it. Like playing drums is the funnest thing in the world so in my opinion <laughs> but so uh so it's just like a really it's and it's so it's really fun to watch adult learners learning this new thing and making these connections I mean it's also interesting with the kids and to real you know like who has the who has the knack and who doesn't but that's also true with adults some adults have more of a knack than others but but I, I, I love the ones who like have no knack and like stick with it anyway, because we're having so much fun, <laughs> you know, you're working with different people doing creative things, getting them out of their comfort zone and not just mm-hmm. doing the thing that's easy. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is uh, like, as an ad- adult learner, I think is really, that's something that took me getting past a certain age to be able to, you know, like, I'm going to try this new thing just for the sake of trying it, not because not to master it. Like, I think I just, as a, as a young person learning things, it was like, I'm only going to do this if I think I can master it. And if it's clear, if it's not, if it's clear that I'm not going to master it, if it's not clear that I'm going to master it fairly early on, then I'm going to quit. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. you know but like being adult doing something like taking a 
African dance class. Like, I'm t- I was terrible at it, but I wasn't doing it because I wanted to be a professional dancer. I was doing it because it was fun, and it didn't matter that I was terrible at it, you know? <laughs>